In these verses, we see God's concern for the disadvantaged of society. Remember, the law is an expression of God's character. And as Christians, we remember that Jesus had a particular concern for the weak, for the poor, and for the vulnerable. And here we see that concern enshrined in the law. Four classes of disadvantaged people are specifically mentioned. The stranger, the widow, the orphan, and the poor. God appoints himself as the guardian and avenger of the underprivileged. R. Alan Cole says usefully here, the society that lacks social justice will itself come under God's judgment. That is well and necessarily said. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. What is justice? What are the principles of social interaction that reflect God's character and nature, and how should those principles be applied? Those are the sorts of questions that we're turning our attention to today as we make our way together through Exodus chapter 22. Here to guide us through that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Exodus chapter 22. Kevin DeYoung's statement is worth remembering here. He said, The Ten Commandments are clear, definite, absolute standards of right and wrong. Once you get to chapter 21, we shift to application. Closed quote. That was true in chapter 21, and that continues to be true here. These are classic examples of casuistic law, case law. We can imagine, in our mind's eye, a long lineup of people waiting to get in front of Moses and to ask him to apply one of the Ten Commandments to a specific situation that has arisen in real life and time. Decisions were then rendered and written down as inspired guides for further application. Douglas Stewart explains this at length in his very helpful commentary. He says that most modern legal codes are exhaustive in nature, meaning that they try to anticipate every conceivable scenario so as to close as many loopholes as humanly possible. But ancient laws did not work this way. They were paradigmatic, giving models of behaviors and models of prohibitions slash punishments relative to those behaviors but they made no attempt to be exhaustive, close quote. So that's what we have in this chapter, a variety of inspired precedents that were intended to serve as a paradigm or pattern for behaving and deciding in the future. Thanks be to God. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double." Now, this is a classic example, the classic example, actually, of paradigmatic law. Douglas Stewart, again, is insightful here. He says, God's revealed covenant law to Israel was paradigmatic. No Israelite could say, the law says I must make restitution for stolen oxen or sheep, but I stole your goat. 
I don't have to pay you back, closed quote. No, no, no. This is not exhaustive law. This is paradigmatic law, meaning that the same principle that is given here in reference to sheep and oxen should be applied to stolen donkeys, tents, cars, or electronics. The principle is the thing we want to keep our eyes on here over and above its contextual application. And of course, we see that very thing in the New Testament. We see it in reference to this commandment, the commandment mentioned in verse 1. In Luke 19, when Zacchaeus wanted to demonstrate the reality of his repentance, he stood up and said, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Fourfold restitution was the standard penalty for intentional theft when the goods were either stolen, destroyed, or otherwise unable to be returned. Now, you'll notice that the penalty for stealing an ox was fivefold. The reason for that premium is generally understood to be that an oxen was used for work. It was basically the ancient equivalent of a tractor. So the extra fold there amounts to lost wages. So fourfold for the theft, one fold for the lost wages. That's the idea. That's the principle that is being enshrined here. Verses two to three are absolutely fascinating. Verse two refers to a nighttime robbery, whereas verse three presupposes that the sun has risen. In the case of the nighttime robbery, it is assumed that the homeowners would be present, and therefore the likelihood of violence is high. And therefore, given the high risk of physical danger and potentially even loss of life, the use of extreme force against the robber is justified. If he is struck and died, there is no penalty. But if he breaks in during the day, one can assume that he did not anticipate anyone being home, and thus the use of deadly force is not justified. Nahum Sarna says helpfully here, here the issue is the hierarchy of values. The biblical scale gives priority to the protection of life, even the life of the burglar, over the protection of property, closed quote. I think that's very important for us to see. Hey, Pastor Paul, let me jump in here because I agree with you, but I think that needs to be clarified. Are you saying that we shouldn't resist someone who's trying to steal our car or lawnmower, or won't that just encourage people to steal at will? Won't that lead to chaos and the breakdown of civil society? Right, I hear that. And so let's clarify here that this passage is simply trying to impose a basic hierarchy of values. The text is saying that life is more important than property. So you can't take someone's life just to protect your property. And that's why the law is different if the person breaks in at night. The nighttime robber has assumed that people are going to be home. And he is obviously prepared for violence should that be necessary. So in that context, you need to do whatever you need to do to protect your family. And thus, the law is saying that there will be no blood guilt on you if you are forced to use violence against the intruder. But if the robber comes into your house during the day, he would have assumed that you're out in the field. He, he's not looking for confrontation. He's just looking to make a quick score. Therefore, there is no justification for the use of deadly force. You have other options in that scenario. You could just call out, sound the alarm, summon your fellow citizens. Or worst case scenario, you can just let him take what he wants and give a description of the person you have seen to the local magistrate. Either way, if you aren't in mortal danger, then you aren't justified in using lethal force. That's the idea here. 
All right. So again, I, and I think I agree with you here, but just to play devil's advocate, let's just play along for a moment here. If every robber in town knows that you aren't <laughs> going to use lethal force on him if he tries to take your stuff, won't that lead to widespread anarchy and chaos? Well, just like with the Sermon on the Mount, this law is addressing the private citizen, the homeowner. It is not saying that theft won't be prosecuted. In fact, in the next verse, it talks about the thief being apprehended with stolen goods in his possession. So the text isn't decriminalizing theft. Magistrates are still out there hunting this fellow down. It is just setting limits on what you can do as a homeowner to protect your property. Okay, so practically speaking, the principle here would be that as Christians, as God's people, we wouldn't want to use deadly force to protect our personal property. We would want to call the police and let them handle it. Yes, that's it exactly. This isn't saying that you can't protect your family from a nighttime intruder. In fact, it is saying that you can, but you can't use that same level of force to protect your lawnmower. <laughs> okay, I, I think I can live with that. That makes a ton of sense. Let's jump back into the story now at verse 4. Verse 4 returns to the matter of stolen property and indicates that if the stolen item can be returned in good repair, then obviously a lesser penalty would be applied. Verse 5, if a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. These verses obviously address the issue of criminal negligence. The punishment, again, is framed in terms of restitution. The more culpable you are, the higher the price that must be paid. Verses 7 to 14 deal in bailment law, something that most of us are not familiar with in modern society. Bailment has to do with placing property in the custody of another person, the bailee, not as a transfer of ownership, but for some other agreed-upon reason. So, for example, you might borrow your neighbor's shovel and leave him your cloak by way of bailment. But then, what if your neighbor's goat eats your cloak? That's what's being discussed here. Verse 7. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe, and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. So, this is the simplest imaginable scenario. The Thief steals your cloak, but if found and he still has the cloak and is able to return it, then in accordance with verse 4, he shall pay double. Simple. But now it gets more complicated in verse 8. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox, for a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, or for any kind of lost thing of which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. So here we imagine a scenario in which Bob gives his neighbor Joe a cloak as bailment so as to borrow Joe's shovel. Dan, however, breaks into Joe's house and steals Bob's cloak. But Dan gets away and the cloak is not recovered. Bob now can't be sure whether Dan did in fact steal the cloak. He wonders actually whether 
or not Joe stole the cloak and blamed it on Dan. What are we supposed to do now? That's the situation. So in such a scenario, the party under suspicion, Joe in this case, would have to swear an oath that he did not wrongly appropriate the item in question. That's what it means to come near to God. The one whom God condemns would then be the person upon whom the obvious curse of God falls. If Joe swears he didn't take it, and then the next day Joe looks more like Job, covered in boils from head to foot, then we will assume that Joe has lied. But since we still don't have tangible proof, Joe will only pay double. That's the basic idea here. Verse 10. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath and he shall not make restitution. But if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it is torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. This is a further complication in the matter of misappropriated or mishandled property in a situation of legal bailment. Suppose you gave your neighbor your donkey so as to borrow his oxen, and while your donkey is in the possession of your neighbor, it dies or runs away. What then? In such a case, the neighbor will swear that he did nothing wrong, and that will be the end of the matter. But if he was negligent and the beast was stolen, he shall make restitution. But if he can show that it was actually mauled as opposed to stolen, then he shall bring the evidence and not pay restitution. Verse 14. If a man borrows anything of his neighbor and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came for its hiring fee. So here the situation is reversed. Suppose you left your donkey with your neighbor in order to borrow his oxen. Your donkey's fine at the end of the day, but your neighbor's oxen has died. According to Moses here, you're on the hook for that. Unless... Your neighbor was with you. If he was working the oxen on your field and the oxen died under his care, then you are not liable. It came for its hiring fee. The assumption is that you hired your neighbor to come with his oxen to plow your field. The hiring fee thus provides you with liability coverage. Verse 16. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. First of all, let's just acknowledge that this is a strange transition from bailment law to seduction. It may be that the connection is the general idea of stealing. You are stealing a young maiden. In fact, some of the Jewish commentators that I consulted on this referred to the transition as being from stealing property to stealing hearts. <laughs> that may be the case, or it may be more financially based. Uh, in this case, the family is being robbed of the financial support that would have come by means of the bride price. So that may be it. Or there may be no logical uh, connection. It they probably didn't line up people uh, to see Moses according to the theme of their concern. The first person in line may have had a concern that was completely unrelated to the second person in line, 
And the precedents may simply have been recorded according to the order in which they were given to Moses. We don't know because the text doesn't say. Either way, what is being said here is fairly straightforward. In that culture, the father who had a daughter of marital age received the bride price from the prospective bridegroom. Here, however, some other man has seduced the young lady and stolen her virginity and thus robbed her family of the expected bride price. The seducer is thus required to pay that amount to the father, irrespective of whether the father permits the young girl to marry her seducer. Now, from verse 18 all the way through to verse 19 of chapter 23, we have a loose collection of categorical commands, meaning they are less narrative and situational than the laws we've been looking at and more general and categorical in nature. So we see, for example, in verse 18, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. That's not a general principle. That, that's a straight up commandment. The people of God are not to dabble in the occult. The Bible makes that very clear in several places over the course of the canon. Verse 19, whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Apparently, this practice was common among the Canaanites, and so this commandment is a way of saying God's people are not to adopt the sexual values and practices of their pagan neighbors. Verse 20, whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. This, of course, is an application of the first commandment. God was serious about that whole monotheism thing. God's people need to be absolutely singular in their devotion. Verse 21, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a moneylender to him. and You shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. In these verses, we see God's concern for the disadvantaged of society. Remember, the law is an expression of God's character. And as Christians, we remember that Jesus had a particular concern for the weak, for the poor, and for the vulnerable. And here we see that concern enshrined in the law. Four classes of disadvantaged people are specifically mentioned. The stranger, the widow, the orphan, and the poor. God appoints himself as the guardian and avenger of the underprivileged. Our Alan Cole says usefully here, the society that lacks social justice will itself come under God's judgment. That is well and necessarily said. Verse 28, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. Now, pause here and remember, the Apostle Paul quoted this verse against himself in Acts 23, verse 5. Paul was on trial, you'll remember, before the council, and Ananias ordered Paul to be struck on the mouth, and Paul did not appreciate that. He said, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? 
the people standing nearby were shocked to hear Paul say that, and they asked why he would speak that way to the high priest, to which then Paul replied, this is verse 5, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people, quoting verse 28 of Exodus chapter 22. Now, we think that Paul had very poor eyesight, and so it was a simple case of misunderstanding. But it illustrates, actually, that Paul, apostle of grace that he was, considered himself subject to the principle being elucidated here. God's people are to be respectful towards authority, a point Paul himself made in Romans 13. Verse 29, You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. Delay in giving to God was understood as a sign of disrespect. We see the same thing taught in the New Testament. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, God loves a cheerful giver. Same principle here. Verse 31. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore, you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. The principle here is that God's people must not do anything to disturb their relationship with the Lord. They were called, after all, to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Therefore, they must avoid certain defiling things. If a priest receives from God so as to give to others, then such a priest obviously must keep his hands clean. In the New Testament, Jesus declared all foods clean, Mark 7, 19, but the principle continues to be taught. James 4, 8, for example, says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded, Close quote. Holy work requires holy people. So purify yourself, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Draw near to the Lord and he will draw near to you. That's the principle Thanks be to God. Pastor Paul, I want to go back to something you said near the end of the program audio there. You read verse 28, which says, quote, You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people, end quote. And you said that the Apostle Paul cited that verse in Acts 23 to rebuke himself. He had accidentally spoken harshly to the high priest, and he calls himself out on the carpet for it. I find that absolutely fascinating for a lot of reasons. I mean, first of all, I suppose that proves that the Apostle Paul was not sinless or perfect in the same way that Jesus was perfect, right? Yeah, I suppose it does. Listen, everyone in the Bible is a sinner except Jesus, and the Apostle Paul would be the first one to tell you that. In, in fact, he said that about himself in 1 Timothy 1.15. He said, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. So Paul did not think he was a perfect, sinless man like Jesus was. That's not what Christians believe about the Apostle Paul, or about any of the apostles for that matter. We believe that the Holy Spirit so superintended their writings that they are perfectly trustworthy and reliable. But as people, of course, they could still make a mistake or, or see something incorrectly or stumble in their speech, but the Holy Spirit so led them and worked through them that what they wrote for us as Scripture is perfectly reliable and true. Now, that's a fine distinction, I grant you, but I think it's a very important one. 
So the Apostle Paul made a mistake here. He said something to the high priest that he shouldn't have. Yes. And now it was an honest mistake. As I mentioned in the program audio, we think that the Apostle Paul had very bad eyesight. So he simply didn't know who it was that had addressed him. He made a mistake born of a normal, physical, human weakness. But as soon as he became aware of it, he corrected it by appeal to Holy Scripture. Yeah, right. So that's my other question. Obviously, Paul thought it was wrong to speak disrespectfully to people in authority over him, even if they were treating him unfairly. So does that mean I have to be careful with what I say and how I say it to the civil and spiritual authorities that are above me? (laughs) Yes, I think it does. Listen, we live in a culture of disrespect. So one of the ways we can shine our lights as Christians is by addressing everyone with the respect and honor that they are due, even when we disagree with them, even when we don't think they're treating us fairly. That is the Christian way. The Apostle Paul said, pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. That's Romans 13, 7. So listen, if the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter could tell their people to show respect to leaders like Nero, who was Caesar of Rome when these words were written, then I think we can speak to the police officer or the judge or the premier or the prime minister with the respect and honor to which they are due. All right, I'm just going to say that doesn't sound easy, (laughs) but based on the text we've looked at today, it does sound like the biblical thing to do. As always, friends, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca, or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. And don't forget to tune in to Life 100.3 next Sunday morning for the next chapter in our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 